0: So, as we look at uh, this passage tonight, uh, we want to um, realize that the Lord Jesus uh, established this new covenant for us. And um, as Paul quotes him, In this cup is new covenant in my blood. Um, re- referring there to is in his death. Um, and A passage that sometimes is tied to the Lord's Supper. I'm pretty sure in Catholicism, Roman Catholicism is tied pretty closely there. Because they believe that the elements actually become the body and blood of Christ. And because Jesus gave a kind of a hard saying back in chapter 6 of John after he fed the 5,000. Um, he goes over to the east side of the Sea of Galilee to try to, try to escape the crowds, but they followed him over there and um, he had uh, compassion upon them and and uh, ended up feeding them with this little boy's lunch. As many of you know the story, I, um, when I was... I think nine, I think you had to be nine years old to become an RA, a royal ambassador. Um, and the first level you came in was built upon um, medieval medieval knight. So the first, first level was lad, and then you moved to squire, and then you moved to knight. And so one of the first assignments in the lad book was to read this story of the, Jesus feeding the five thousand, and talk to one of your parents about it. Well, I, I read it and I talked to my mom about it, and we had to read it and discuss it, and then, had to check it off in the lad book. And so that my one of my first stories that I really focused on to try to understand was, this uh, story, this account in um, John's Gospel in chapter six. And so uh, Jesus' feeds is really probably close to 20,000. They just count the men, 5,000 men plus wives plus children. So most commentators think at the minimum, it's very, very minimum, it's 10,000, but more like fifteen to 20,000 that Jesus feeds with this little uh, happy meal. Um, these, um, uh, in verse 9, there's a le- boy here who has five barley loaves, and the barley loaves indicate that this boy came from a poor family because barley was used by the the poorest of people. It wasn't wheat, it it was the lowest grain, and uh, so he has five barley loaves, and he has two fish, and they were probably small fish, kind of like sardines, that he would put on uh, these barley loaves, and they were more like crackers. Um... And uh, that was going to be his meal for the day. And so apparently he's the only one that brought food. um, But Jesus transformed it and fed the 5,000. So they wanted to make him, the crowd gets all excited. They want to make him king right there. Recognize him as Messiah. They want to put him on their shoulders and march back down uh, to Jerusalem and kick the Romans out of Jerusalem and out of Judea. So that was a temptation, I think, instigated by Satan, similar to the one he had in the wilderness. Uh, he, wanted, he wanted Jesus to bypass the cross, to go around the cross um, and just let this crowd make him Messiah. So he sends the crowd away, sends the disciples away. He goes up in the mountain to pray. This is when um, about four o'clock in the morning, uh, he's, he sees uh, the disciples struggling on the Sea of Galilee because there was a storm there and he comes walking by. They're terrified and he says, don't be afraid, it's I, it's me, I am, it's the great I am. And uh, he gets in the boat and they immediately get to the land that they were going. So the crowd wakes up the next day and say, where is Jesus at? And then some people came back over from the west side of the kind of northwest bank of the Sea of Galilee and said well he's back uh, to Capernaum so they go back around uh, to Capernaum and they confront Jesus and um, Jesus tells them that you're only following me because you got full bellies I fed you and so he goes into his discourse of being the bread of life um when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them this is the work of god that you believe in him whom he has sent so they said to him then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you now they just saw him take a little lunch and feed thousands of people just 24 hours ago um, that's how long miracles last basically the impression of them people say if i could just see a miracle if i could just see jesus i believe in him uh, probably not because that's, uh, that's not how we're to see Him. Uh, just as a miracle worker. As, a, as a, a Santa Claus up in the sky to give us what we want. Later on in chapter 12, He says to these Greeks, If you want to see me, you've got to see me at the cross. He says the similar, similar thing here when He gets into this hard saying in just a moment. And I'm going around this bush to get back to chapter 11. Because I don't believe what Jesus says here is about the Lord's Supper. It's about his death. It's about his shed blood, his broken body. He says, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you can't be my disciple. He's saying, unless you identify with me at the cross. Jesus, keep me near the cross. Um Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, verily, verily, King James, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He said to them, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. There's again, I talked Sunday morning about Jesus is the second man. Jesus is the sent one. This is the will of him who sent me, twice in two verses, that I should lose nothing of of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread of life and came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father, comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died because it was just physical food. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. This is spiritual food. Now, the early church was accused of cannibalism because of what Jesus says here. But he's, he's not talking about physical flesh and physical blood. He's talking about his death, his broken body, his shed blood. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Who can hear it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that the disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, Do you take offense of this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. He's not talking about physical flesh. That's why I think the Roman Catholic Church has it wrong. They take what Jesus says here in chapter 6 and apply it to the Lord's Supper that the bread and the wine change. It's called transubstantiation that it literally becomes the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. But he's saying the Spirit gives life. He's referring to what he accomplished through his death, his broken body, and his shed blood. Unless we embrace his sacrifice by faith, we do not benefit from his sacrifice. We do not benefit from the price he paid on the cross. For our sin, The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe. And who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was one of the twelve who was going to betray him. Okay, so The Lord's Supper is very significant. In fact, we as Baptists believe it's one of the two ordinances of the church that we are to observe. The the other is baptism. In a sense, baptism is first because that's the first encounter that a believer has to profess his faith in Jesus Christ symbolically by demonstrating that he has died with Christ and buried with him and been raised to walk in the new life. It's a picture, a three-dimensional picture of the reality of our union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And so we see that as an ordinance of the church that uh, every professing believer ought to profess Christ through the means of baptism publicly to show others that they have identified by faith with the Lord Jesus in his death for their sins, in his burial and dying to sin, and his resurrection being raised to walk in newness of life to pursue a life of holiness and righteousness. And then the second ordinance would be the Lord's Supper. That then you, We believe that only those who are truly regenerate, who have placed their faith in Christ, and have professed Christ by public baptism, uh, can be offered the Lord's Supper now I, I never refuse anyone it's between them and the Lord it's the Lord's table and uh, uh, they have to discern in their own heart if they're a true believer and if they profess Christ by baptism there are some churches historically uh, called landmark churches uh, that uh, would not even allow visiting believers to participate in the Lord's Supper They would say something like this, we're going to receive the Lord's Supper after the morning service. And if you're not a member of the church, after our closing prayer, we'd ask you to leave. And then uh, our congregation can partake of the Lord's Supper. Uh, That was called landmarkism. And it's still, in some areas in in Southern Illinois, I know, I ran across it there. And in some regions of Tennessee and Kentucky and other places, it's still in practice. But uh, I've never refused anybody from the Lord's table because it's His table. And um, they, they're, they're accountable um, before Him. We try to stress it's for believers who've been baptized and profess Christ, but the individual must make that, I believe, determination. So what was going on was abuse of the Lord's Supper. Not just the Lord's Supper, but they would have a fellowship meal Uh, Prior to the Lord's Supper and uh, concluding with the Lord's Supper and uh, it was being abused. So he says here in verse 17, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Well, he's going back to what he says in verse 2 where he says, now I commend you because you remember me and everything and maintain your traditions even as I delivered them to you. And he was talking about uh, spiritual leadership as we saw two weeks ago. But here Paul says in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together it is not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. That's a little um, uh, ambiguous there. Paul's either using sarcasm here or he's saying that God will work through these divisions to reveal the genuine believers in your midst. Um, And so he's saying God's going to work in the midst of this division and bring out something that's good. He says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, What? I mean, Paul's incredulous here. What? What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Now, some have used this text to say we shouldn't have fellowship meals at church. What Paul's saying here, we shouldn't have uh, abusive fellowship meals at church that uh, we share and share alike. And, and um, uh, if someone's able to bring something, they bring it. If they're not able to bring it, we say come anyway because we're in this together. It's a fellowship meal. Uh, but what he's saying here, if you're just going to hoard your food, just stay at home and eat it. Don't even bring it to church if you're not going to share it. Uh, if you don't have compassion on your uh, brother or sister who's not as well off as you and share that bread. You know, uh, I don't know if it was Martin Luther who said it first. I, I think I've heard it quoted by Diedrich Bonhoeffer to say, "I'm just," and maybe even Charles Spurgeon, I'm just one beggar sharing bread with another beggar. That's the gospel. But even physically, when we have fellowship meals, we share together. And uh, I think I I mentioned this at Antioch. I uh, mentioned several other churches. I read an article several years ago, about 10 years ago, 12 years ago, maybe longer than that, about a church in uh, Dallas, Texas that split. Very contentious split. In fact, it made the newspapers, and it was a, it was a it was a shame to that church that it made the newspapers. The split started and occurred because they were having a meal at the church, and there was a little boy here, and there was a deacon behind him in line, and when the server gave the little boy a piece of meat it was bigger than the piece of meat they gave to the deacon. And the deacon was offended by that and raised a whole stink about it. And then people started taking sides and ultimately the church split because this deacon was jealous over the piece of meat that this young boy got. And maybe in the Lord's providence, this young boy needed that meal more than probably this overweight deacon. Uh, That's how... Foolish and terrible, stuff like jealousy within the congregation. So Paul, he's rebuking these Corinthian believers because some of them were hoarding their food in abundance when others in the midst were going without food. And others were abusing the wine that was there and getting drunk and, and abusing the time in the Lord's presence to supposedly lead up to a worship experience of observing the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, in a sense, uh, the transformed Passover Supper. So he says, um, um, "Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing?" These are pretty strong words, Paul saying to this uh, church. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. I will not commend you in your conduct, he's saying. Your selfishness, your abuse, your drunkenness. In fact, later on, uh, toward the end of this chapter, verse 27, Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill. You're sick. And some have died. God's judgment was upon them. They didn't die from the food. They died from God's judgment. They were sick from God's judgment. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not then be judged. You wouldn't be in danger of death. Uh, So I'm going to stop there. We'll finish up that later. So he says, I I will not commend you for your abuses. But I'm going to remind you what the Lord's Supper is about. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Paul saying, the Lord revealed to me his purposes in this memorial Supper, and I want to remind you of it. For what I received from the Lord, I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night that He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it. Okay. Now this, this is represent. I'm I'm with Swingley here. Swingley believes and taught, and I, I most Baptists believe this, that these elements are symbolic. They represent the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. Now, we as Baptists, most Baptists, some do, but most don't, uh, don't uh, use wine. I know when, um, first time I went to the Crimea, we went to this uh, village and there was just a handful of believers, about six or seven believers. And uh, we were going to share the Lord's Supper with them. And... Um, We had bread, and we had one cup. And Pastor Vasily Markovich poured, I didn't realize it, but it was wine. He poured wine into the cup. And uh, uh, after we talked about what the Lord's Supper was and and, uh, had prayer, he offered me the cup first. And I don't know if I realized it at that moment, or prior, or right at that moment, I realized it was wine. So I took a little sip. And then it was. He would wipe off the rim, and he passed it to the next person. Passed next person until it came to him, and he took a sip and wiped it off. And then we concluded the service. And then he offered me the remaining uh, wine in the cup for me to, to finish it off. And I, uh, as politely as I could, deferred. And then he he uh, drank the rest of the wine. Didn't want really to go to waste. Uh, but we use grape juice, the fruit of the vine, because. Um, It's what it represents. It represents the blood of Christ, which represents his death. The Bible says the life, life is in the blood. Now, scientifically we know, biologically we know, that the blood is what carries oxygen throughout the body, from the lung, from the heart, to the lungs, to the body, back uh, to the heart, through the lungs, and we exhale out all the carbon, uh, Oxide. And um, that's the process. And if, if you get cut in a femoral artery or a jugular vein or uh, an artery, and it's not attended to, you're going to bleed out. And you're going to die because life is in the blood. We need blood in our brains to bring that oxygen, so that so that our, our brain stays healthy. So the idea of the blood, you know, I I considered another hymn um, I must have put it up but it's uh, What Can Wash Away My Sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now oh, Precious is the Flow. Uh, we're talking about the blood of Jesus Christ First John 1 7 the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us of all sin. What does that mean? It means that his Death and the shedding of his blood is is a covering, a sufficient covering for our sins to be forgiven. We're not not literally washed in the blood of Christ. It's it's a metaphor. It's, it's It's a spiritual reality that we are cleansed by his sacrifice. We are cleansed by his death. The shedding of his blood was an indication that Jesus really died. Uh, the brokenness of his body now, and I'm not talking about his bones because uh, the, the Bible says and it was fulfilled and not one of his bones were broken, but his body was broken through the scourging, uh, through the lack of hydration, through the bursting of his heart, um, through the, shedding, the sweating of drops of blood. And so uh, Jesus is saying, through my sacrifice, I'm sealing the new covenant. Every covenant was sealed by the shedding of blood. And so that's why Jesus said, In this cup is the new covenant, which is in my blood. Through the shedding of my blood, I have sealed this covenant. Through his sinless life, he became qualified to establish the new covenant. And through his substitutionary death, He sealed the covenant. The price has been paid. The wage of my sin is death, and that death has been paid through the death of the Lord Jesus. And so, Paul said, I'm going to remind you that after he gave thanks, he took the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember what I've done for you. It's a memorial service. And we're going to observe it until Jesus comes back, and we'll not need to to observe it anymore, because we're going to see the reality of the Lord Jesus. And so, I say this all the time when we have the Lord's Supper, and this is what we have to have in our thinking. Um, there's a backward look when we come to the Lord's Supper. There's a backward look, back through Scripture. To the cross. And we ask the Holy Spirit to help us to understand the magnitude of the sacrifice of Christ because the magnitude of our sin. We take our sin so lightly, but God doesn't. He is offended by our sin, He is offended by our rebellion. He is the King, He is the Lord, He is God, He is the Maker of heaven and earth. And where mankind is in cosmic uh, rebellion against Him, and it took the death of the Lord Jesus to um, took the death of the Lord Jesus to remove that guilt, and so in the same way, verse twenty-five, He took the cup after supper, saying, "This cup is the new covenant in My blood." Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. What are we remembering? We're remembering what Jesus has done for us. In in a way, that's a means of grace, for God's grace to work in our heart. Where John says in 1 John, we love him because he first loved us. Where? At the cross. At the cross. Where I first saw the light. And the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight. And now I am happy all the day at the cross. And so we look back and we need to look in, in our own heart. That's what he says here. Uh, Let each person examine himself. And so eat the bread and drink the cup. We look in our heart and see what's there that is displeasing to the Lord and we need to confess that sin and forsake it and trust the cleansing power of the Lord Jesus Christ in his sacrifice to be a kind of continual cleansing that's what First John 1, 9 is about if we confess our sin he, the Father, is faithful and just to cleanse us of all sin and of all unrighteousness Okay, and um, So we look in. And then we look forward. Verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So that's what this broken body, shed blood, is about. It's about his death. There's nothing magical or um, redeeming about the elements We've been redeemed by the blood and body of Christ, his sacrifice, his death. We show his death till he comes. It's only at the cross and our faith in what Jesus has done for us in his life, death, and resurrection that we receive the gift of everlasting life. That's what Jesus was talking about. Unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. He's talking about spiritually. Unless you partake and believe in what I've accomplished. Again, in chapter 12, he says, unless a grain of wheat falls on the ground and dies it can't bring forth life he's saying to these Greeks if you want to see me the first place you need to see me is at the cross where I'm dying for your sin and I am paying the price for your sin that my blood is being shed my death is occurring to take your place because the wage of sin is death and I'm going to experience that death not just physical that Jesus physically died but He bore the wrath of God so that we can escape spiritual death, so we can receive everlasting life. So, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Now, none of us are worthy to come to the table. The only reason we can come to the table is because of the Lord Jesus and His righteousness. He he makes us worthy. Not intrinsically within ourselves, but by imputing to us, the Father imputing to us His righteousness. And so clothed in His righteousness, we can come to His table. That's why the Lord's Supper is for the truly regenerate believer who has been clothed in the righteousness of Christ and who has has not been ashamed of Christ and has professed him publicly by uh, New Testament baptism. Now again, I leave it to the individual. Maybe it, maybe I should be a little bit more strict, but only God knows my heart, knows your heart, knows their heart, and only they, by God's grace, can know their heart. But he's saying, let each person examine himself. I probably ought to read that more often when we take the Lord's Supper, so I'll remind myself to do that. Uh, because, he says, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Because it's a profaning, it's, it's a, uh, I guess we could say maybe it's a mockery of what Jesus did for us, because if people are thinking, if I if I eat this bread and drink this juice or this wine, that's going to save me. No, that's the sacramental estimate of it is not a reality. What saves us is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in what He did for us at the cross, and we are remembering what He did for us at the cross. We're remembering and honoring him that he died for our sins, that his body was broken, that his blood was shed, that he sealed this new covenant. The new covenant is based upon Jesus's performance, not ours. The old covenant is based upon our performance. And we can't perform it. We can't measure up. And therefore, we're condemned under it. And so Jesus came to measure up for us and to seal this new covenant which we receive by faith. We receive everlasting life. We receive forgiveness. We receive uh, reconciliation by faith in what Jesus did at the cross. And um, so we're remembering that. And that is a means of grace to work in our heart to stir up love for him for what he's done for us we love him because he first loved us and we begin to see the magnitude of his sacrifice on the cross so uh, verse 32 but when we are judged by the Lord we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world Paul's saying this sickness and this death that has occurred among you was really the discipline and judgment of the Lord. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, so that when he you come together it will not be for judgment. About other things I will give direction when I come. And so our time is, is up. And uh, we want to recognize that the Lord's Supper is is a, a very significant, holy experience, because by faith we are remembering what Jesus did for us, and we are expressing our thanksgiving, our love, our joy for what we have in Him in the New Covenant, that we are forgiven that um, we have everlasting life, that we are reconciled to God, that we have access into His presence because of what Jesus has done for us. And we can cry, have a Father. We're adopted into His family. We're born from above. We're a new creation in Him. And we rejoice in that when we receive and participate in the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father, for all that he accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection. So, Father, I pray that uh, your Word will, and the Holy Spirit will take your Word and move in our hearts to draw us closer to you and help us realize the great price that was paid for our sin. And that, Father, we would love you in a fresh way, in a new way, in a, a more fervent way. For your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're continuing. Uh, we're singing the Christmas songs. I thought about singing some tonight. We'll probably sing some next week. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, for our Bible study. I just love the Christmas songs. Uh, some of them are very simple. Some of them have great theology. Most of them have. About all of them have great theology, but some have it more simply expresses it. Some have deep expressions of it. Um, and um, so we're singing the Christmas songs on Sunday. We'll sing some here on Wednesday night also. Um, I'm doing a, stir- a series on the Incarnation uh, for us and for our salvation. Jesus came for us and for our salvation. That's kind of the theme that we'll be looking at Um each Sunday morning uh, for next two Sundays. On the 17th, we're going to have a, a Christmas program. It's going to be singing and sharing and uh, uh, some readings. And uh, then we're going to have a meal after the service there. So if you don't have a church home, I invite you to join us this Sunday. Uh, but <coughs> try to make it on the 17th. It'll be a great day. Christmas Eve, the 24th, uh, we're just having a worship service at 10 o'clock on the 24th of December, Christmas Eve. We'll gather together for a worship service at 10 o'clock, and those that need to travel, maybe uh, not too far away, can still have time to go be with their family. But um, uh, so, For Us and For Our Salvation, the Incarnation, 17th uh, Christmas program meal afterwards and um christmas eve on the 24th 10 o'clock service lord bless you and lord willing we'll see you next week